Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Episode 260, Crossroads. The Devil and Robert Johnson. August 16th was the 81st anniversary of the passing of the legendary blues musician Robert Johnson. So we wanted to talk about some of the legends of this guy for this week. Wendy and Scott, how are we doing today? Well, better than Robert Johnson, <laughs> who has spent the last 81 years apparently in hell. <laughs> right. As the legend goes. Uh, As the legend goes. Doing great over here, though. Yes. Really excited about this week. Why is that, Wendy? Well, because we have a big road trip coming up, Mike. Ah, yes, we do. To the beautiful shores of Sault Ste. Marie. Yes, I can't wait to play at Michigan Paracon. So we'll see you guys there. We'll be playing on the Saturday night of the Michigan Paracon, Sault Ste. Marie. There are still tickets available, but I think they're running out. So you're going to want to make sure you have to buy them at the door. And uh, Wendy and I will be performing there Saturday night. You have a chance to meet some paranormal TV celebs, if that's your thing. Uh, and then a ton of people who've been on the podcast before as well. The Ghost Brothers will be there. Uh, Greg Lawson will be there. Oh, man. Yeah, a lot of people that uh, we met for the first time at, at Michigan. It's always one of the big highlights of the year for us. Yeah, this will be, what, our third time going? Yes, it will be. And uh, Ursula from Chicago Hauntings will be presenting. So um, we talked with her before. And it just it, it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, the, the Ghost Hunters are going to be there. So if you're getting excited about that new season of Ghost Hunters, like I know y'all are. <laughs> Kristen Lumen, who's been on the show before, she'll be it's anyway, it is a it is a murderer's row. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's in beautiful Sault Ste. Marie, which is right on the border between the United States and Canada. So we can gaze wistfully over the <laughs> over the locks. Yeah, pop over the border to grab some maple syrup and weed. Yeah, exactly. And and Tony Hortons, right? That's the donut. Bob donut Hortons. Place or Tim Hortons. What am I saying? Tim Bob. Hortons. There we go. I'm thinking oh, of Bob Bob American. I always conflate those places because they're not in Wisconsin. Bob Evans and Tim Hortons. Even and I'm thinking Tony Horton like the the P90X guy. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> he doesn't like donuts. Donuts bad. <laughs> right. Tony. Make y'all mushy. Right. If if you want to be um <laughs> A slab of lard instead of a slab of fine beef like Tony Horton. <laughs> you're going to have some of those Canadian maple syrup donuts. Right. Well, anyway. But if you're going to be there, please make sure and say hello to us. And you you can come and see us perform some paranormally inspired songs mm-hmm. on Saturday night. That's right. What time is that, Mike, that we're playing? We'll be playing from 6 to 9. 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. So you're wow. Have, we got a lot of music for you, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And Michigan Paracon is always a delight. And anyway, we'll party with you guys there. So we just wanted to get that message out there right away. If you guys are coming to Michigan Paracon, come and meet us. Let's hang out. Uh, let's have some beers in the bar, have some music out front, and uh, yeah. just talk about weird stuff. And if you're not going, but there's something that you want us to check out for you, oh, you know, yes. we can do some reporting. So just let us know if there's anything particular that you want us to talk about or check out. I got to say, one of my highlights last year was watching Jeff Blanger, who was one of your guests, uh, watch him watch you guys perform <laughs> Digging Up the Dead, a song based on his episode. Watch that live. He was, he was just beaming watching you guys play. Oh, so that's nice. That was a very cool moment. Like a proud that's father. Cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, no, that'll be fun. Oh, yeah. Jeff Blanchard, he's always a delightful storyteller. Anyway, the place is chock full of awesome storytellers, and we can't wait to party with you guys in Michigan. We're going to invade the UP, take it back for Wisconsin, <laughs> and have a good time coming up this weekend at Michigan Paracon. Uh, we'll have links in the show notes and, and talk more about that. But today, we are, I wouldn't say celebra- celebrating the anniversary of someone's death. That sounds How morbid. About- yeah. Commemorating. And, and and why would something morbid happen on this show? <laughs> I guess nice. you're right. Morbid's kind of what we do. But commemorating works, yes. Yeah. You know, it, it's sometimes when I think about the songs we sing and, uh, you know, the stuff based on the podcast and the different themes of our music, I think about this review we got uh, from a Cincinnati magazine 
uh, you know, maybe 10 years ago or whatever. And it was like, they're the happiest songs about the most disturbing topics you can imagine. <laughs> and it just made me laugh. I was like, yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. But <laughs> other people write great love songs. Somebody has to write a song about weird stuff. And that uh, seems to be our stock and trade. Um, well, Robert Johnson as the, you know, a seminal blues musician, born May 8th, 1911, died August 16th, 1938. Uh, I mean, he wasn't afraid to deal in dark themes either. A lot of the early blues musicians, they weren't afraid to deal in these dark themes. Well, and he was one of the first to be in the 27 Club. That's exactly right. I mean, he, he might be the inaugurator yeah. of the 27 Club. Like, he's the, he opened the juke joint. <laughs> nice. Of uh, that, you know that you know jim morrison uh is singing in right now <laughs> so if you guys aren't familiar with robert johnson's music you might be familiar with some of the versions you've heard on classic rock radio um over the course of the last few decades probably the most famous cover of his music is going to be cream's version of crossroad blues that they call mm-hmm. just crossroads and uh, i mean that one hit that was in the american top 40 so, uh, I mean, Clapton had already been playing that for a while, and then they just brought it out as a, at a recording session, and it became, you know, besides White Room, probably Cream's most favorite song, famous song, uh, is a Robert Johnson version of Crossroads. Um, you might have, I mean, Led Zeppelin definitely aped Robert Johnson. We'll be talking a little bit more about that, um, but if you've heard their version of Traveling Riverside Blues, that's directly from Robert Johnson. If you've heard the Lemon song... You've heard Robert Johnson. Um, <laughs> and they were, you know, Jimmy Page was so inspired by his licks. Interestingly enough, I mean, uh, Eric Clapton's the original guitar player in the Yardbirds. And then when they make the new Yardbirds or whatever, Eric Clapton leaves, goes to Cream. Jimmy Page is his replacement. Oh, wow. So this, you know, Robert Johnson becomes super influential in the 1960s, even though he's 27 years old. When he passes away, he's only got two recording sessions in his life and only, and they recorded all of them like over a course of three days. And so one session was three days. The other session was two days, uh, done in like a hotel room, improvised, improvised recording studio. And he had recorded 39 songs in a manner of those few days. And most of his recordings were released posthumously in that, you know, while he was alive, he, I mean, people knew about him if you're a musician in the, uh, you know, the southern United States. But as far as he would not become the legend, he would become celebrity. a celebrity. He like wasn't a, like a celebrity. Right. The celebrity. Right. Because you guys just watched a movie on Netflix about him last night, right? Yeah. It came out, I think, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, remastered Devil at the Crossroads. And so, like, there's documentaries made about him. People write books about Robert Johnson. Um and then we'll get to like the most famous movie inspired yeah. by Robert Johnson in, in a couple of minutes. But uh, so he does this recording and then they start getting, you know, these albums and these songs start getting released slowly. And then when the, the British invasion, these British musicians in the 1960s started really getting obsessed with American blues music and the, and the legend of the American bluesman. And that's how kind of he takes off into public consciousness after you have those you know, those singles of Crossroads, Rolling Stones cover Love in Vain, um, Led Zeppelin apes half of his material, as which I did not, you know, as someone who listened to so much Led Zeppelin as a young man, I did not realize how much they had taken from the original blues guys. Yeah, no, it, it's really amazing. Um, it, it makes me think you should maybe get a, a Robert Johnson reference in, uh, in uh, Saturday Night Gospel now somehow. Uh, <laughs> your song about listening to Zeppelin. But yeah, in that documentary as well, you're talking about all the people that were influenced by him. Uh, you know how tough it can be to track down A-list talent to appear in a documentary. But they had uh, they had uh, Keith <laughs> Keith Richards in there. Uh, Bonnie Raitt was in it. Uh, Eric Clapton. And the first concert I ever went to was an Eric Clapton concert when he began putting out blues albums. You know, much more recently. Sure. And um, <clears throat> compared to, you know, Yardbirds and Cream more recently. And he didn't do any of his classic stuff. It was all stuff off of his new album, except for one song, one classic Clapton song, and it was Crossroads. Nice. <laughs> so, that's again, cool. it's like that's one thing that one uh, influence that he always pays homage to. And again, you hear classic Muddy Waters 
And it's hard to not think of Robert Johnson because that influence is so strong. And of course, Muddy Waters was the guy that became the international superstar. And the you know the the Stones named themselves after one of his songs and right. a lyric of his. So that, that they talk about that. They address that in the documentary too. Is Keith actually talks about that a lot? Keith Richards talks about how yes, we didn't know Robert Johnson, but we were absolutely influenced him through Muddy Waters and through these other blues men that came up just a little bit after him. Well, you know, we, we've covered a Robert Johnson song in the podcast before because his song, Sweet Home Chicago. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I mean, we talk about Eric Clapton. Uh, so one of the concerts that I didn't go to, but I, I would hear about all the time in my youth was the, you know, the last performance by Stevie Ray Vaughan was at uh. Alpine Valley Music Theater in East Troy, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, which is about 10 minutes from my parents' house. And it was Robert Cray, Eric Clapton, Stevie Ray Vaughan. I think Stevie Ray's brother Jimmy was there. I can't remember if he was there with Double Trouble hmm. or I know, uh, with uh, Fabulous Thunderbirds. But, I mean, there was this big jam at the end. Everybody came out. Stevie Ray, Robert Cray, Eric Clapton. They all jammed out. And the song they jammed out to was Sweet Home Chicago. <laughs> nice. So that was, I mean, they all sing it. And if you guys have heard it, it's, and they sing it in the Blues Brothers uh, baby, don't you want to go? You'll, you'd recognize it right away if you guys haven't heard it. But so, the, I mean, so and that, we have a parody of, song of it, right? Called "Sweet Home Chicago Mothman." <laughs> <laughs> that's in our episode about the uh, Chicago Mothman. But you know, so that's the, that's the last song Steve Ray Vaughan ever plays is a Robert Johnson track. Wow! And so immediately after he's done playing it, he gets on the hel- instead of taking the bus or whatever, he gets on the helicopter because he wants to get back to the. Uh, back to the airport and he wants to get back to Austin as soon as he can and then what happens is that the helicopter crashes um, at Alpine Valley and then he passes away so Robert Johnson uh, he because we know so little about his life you know he becomes steeped in folklore and all you have are these recordings from the 1930s and there's only two pictures ever taken of him Mm -hmm. and you know one of the pictures is uh, the one they usually use. He's like sitting with his guitar. He's got like a derby on. You know, he looks like a, a young man. Like, yeah, I'm ready to perform for you, everybody. Yeah. Come on. Pinstripe suit. Very classy. Yeah. It's time for some blues. I, I think it is those two photos, though, that helps him be this enduring legend. Because the other one is way more casual. Uh, it's a closer up shot. He's got a cigarette just hanging out of his mouth. And it, it looks like James Dean in a way. It's got that like classic oh, cool look. Yeah. That yeah, uh, the rebel, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and that really is true. Like I think th- those two pictures are like those the two sides of him. Like here's the here's the polished side, mm-hmm. and then here's the well the dark side maybe. Just the, <laughs> looking at you, the the dangerous aspect of him. And when you think about the life of these blues guys in the 1920s and the 1930s. I mean, they did live. I mean, you, when you think about the rock star life of like traveling from town to town and groupies and drinking too much and drug use and partying and everything. Well, the the Delta Bluesmen in the in Mississippi in the 1930s, they set that mold <laughs> for them. And we, we joke about how they influenced the rock stars of the 1960s and 70s musically. Well, they certainly did it with their lifestyles as well. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Robert Johnson is, I mean, People remember him as a shy and, you know, somewhat reserved kind of guy when he wasn't on stage. But also, I mean, when you think about it, so he's born in 1911. He's, you know, 17, 18, and 19. Like, this is when he's first going out and playing with other people and and going on the road. I mean, he comes from a huge family. His mom had 10 kids before he was born. Wow. (laughs) And, And so, and then she gets married to someone who's not his natural father. Right. And then so he eventually takes on his natural father's name of Johnson. And he gets married, too, when he's uh, 18 years old. He gets married to a 16-year-old woman who dies in childbirth. While he's on the road. Yes. So he right. he comes home and the, the funeral's already happened. They've already been buried. He comes home so excited because he's about to see his wife he hasn't seen in a while and meet his yeah. newborn child. And he has no idea that she died, you know, and of course the child too. And so then of course, as the documentary reports it, mm-hmm. the family blames him for her death because he plays the devil music. So they're like, you know, it's your fault that yeah. she died. So he comes home to this shocking scene. It's just so tragic to even imagine what that would be like, you know, 
Hmm. Like <laughs> to get that news and then to have everybody blaming you for it. Just horrible. Well, you know, the thing is, too, is that when you say the devil's music, it's not that specifically like we think of the devil's music now. We think of the satanic panic in the 80s when you look at the uh, the the artwork for Shout at the Devil by Motley Crue. <laughs> and then they're all like they're at a satanic mass, you know, and they have, you know, and there's upside down crosses right. and pentagrams everywhere. And metal These songs guys. like, you know, The Number of the Beast and stuff like that. Right. And then you Which, see their Netflix movie and you're like, oh, yeah, these guys are just frauds. <laughs> right. They're, they're just really Sunset Boulevard trash. <laughs> but they were using, uh, you know, they were using occult imagery in their songs. Even, But the thing is, Robert Johnson didn't even, hardly even had any occult imagery in his songs. People thought of the devil music back then as anything non-religious. Right. And I thought... Again, referencing this documentary, I thought it was really interesting because they said the reason it started getting that reputation was because people were going out to the clubs and spending their money to hear yeah, this music. At the juke joints. And so the church leaders. <laughs> There's no money to donate then. The next, yeah, you know, they go to church and they wouldn't have the money to, to put in the hat. So I, it's just it was just a, a business. It's all about the money. You know, uh, it's like oh, if we start saying that that's for the devil, you guys get drunk and you fight and that's the devil coming out you're letting the devil in so don't go to the juke joints just come to church and spend your money here bring your money here instead of (laughs) to the show i think that just the idea of juke joints are really interesting to me because first of all i mean that's where we get the term rock and roll comes from those juke joints um they and if you guys so the idea of a juke joint is that you know how like we think of most places now, if it's a bar, it's a place that's set up, it's been designed to be a business, you know, it's legal, they have their, you know, their licenses and <laughs> Most order. of them are. <laughs> the, the, right. The bartenders had to take, you know, a, a, a course or whatever. This is in the 1920s in the South. You got to remember that it's, we're still in the, dealing with an era of segregation. So you have these, um, you know, black people who after working a hard day, they want to go and party and do something. They can't go to the yeah. the bars that are just for white people. They can't go to see live music with a white audience. They have to develop their own places. And the juke joints are just, you know, it'd be lean-tos, just houses set up, abandoned buildings and everything. And it'd just be like, here's where we're having our party. We're having, you know, this is this is where we're setting it up. And, you know, this idea, they had sundown laws at the time too, where, uh, if you were African American, you weren't. You know, they had special curfews for African Americans. You know that the sundown laws. That's um, even in one of Robert Johnson's songs. He talks about you know the sun's coming down, and um, in Hellhound on My Trail, he talks about how the, how the sun's coming down and he's got to get home and got to keep moving on. Um, and that's you know people think that that's an actual allusion to the sundown laws against, you know, uh, people of color back in the, you know, 1920s and 1930s. So they needed a place to go to, and where you're going to go to is the juke joint set up just to be yeah, uh, a place to a go. place for African Americans. And and there's a circuit where they travel from town to town, and you know, when we talk about a traveling musician, these guys weren't staying in four-star hotels. They weren't going on a tour bus. I mean, Robert Johnson would go from town to town, he'd start his day playing on street corners and in front of the barbershop for tips. Hmm. You know, and then in the evening, they could go play at the juke joint. And then he'd ha- there's stories of him. He tried to find the, um, as quote unquote, homely girl uh, that would let him come back and stay at their, you know, at the house with their family. And so it was really a, a you know, a scrappy existence where you'd go play, make, it, make any money you could, and then beg to stay at somebody's house. It basically was house concerts, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, in that idea. And then, you know, um, the term rock and roll came from these juke joints and also the idea of the term rock and roll uh, meant to make love and that was their original usage. So when people were singing about rocking and rolling at the time in these juke joints, they were talking about getting it on. Uh. And so, and so uh, then... You know, it, it becomes part of this of blues and R&B and black music and culture. And so eventually when the white guys started taking the black, like think about Bill Haley. He comes out with Rock Around the Clock, Good Rockin' Tonight, <laughs> you know, things like that. Bill Haley's talking about um, making the beast with two backs. 
<laughs> and so the, the, D, the DJs didn't realize what it was about. So DJs were just like, okay, we're just going to call it rock and roll music because they used the, I mean, it. Alan Freed, right, was the first guy to use the term rock and roll. And he's taking it because all the white guys who are doing these black songs and appropriating the terms from it, they're like, well, they use the word rock and roll so much, I guess. I bet. I guess we have to uh, just call it that. And then, so you so mean Kiss really uh, wanted to do something else all night and party every day? Yeah. Strange, <laughs> strange that Gene Simmons would even be thinking about something like that. He seems like such a good boy, <laughs> such a wholesome right. young man, right? Keim Witz is yeah. what I to think about. Like, oh, such a good. You know, you can imagine him. Uh, you know, his bar mitzvah yeah, or whatever, exactly. and then you would think that he would eventually become like the demon in Kiss <laughs> and like sticking out his tongue and just being disgusting, <laughs> uh, which he does so well. But, you know, the language from that, though, uh, well, we can get more into that in, in, in language in a second. We want to talk a little bit more about how you know, Robert Johnson and what goes, the legend behind him goes is that he's like 18, 19 years old, and people thought of him as a pretty good blues musician, not particularly on guitar. Not, yeah, not among musicians as well. <laughs> he did not have the respect of his peers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. They thought he was a, a decent harp player or whatever, harmonica. Uh-huh. And then he disappears for a while. And when he comes back to his home area in Clarksdale, he's a badass. <laughs> like, he's a great player. And so much so that when Keith, Keith Richards is listening to the recordings for the first time, Keith Richards thinks there's two guitar players and not one. Because Robert Johnson is doing finger style where he's playing the bass line in blues music that dun 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 with you know on the bottom string while he's doing the uh, the higher part that on the top. Uh, with the slide or whatever yeah and he also like he would add he added another string to the guitar too like he would string I don't know he must have doubled one up on one of the pegs yeah, I was or something. wondering about that a seven string guitar yeah we still don't have that. It well, we do, but their guitar is manufactured like yeah. with a place for the seven string. But he would just add the string to the, you know, the six string normal guitar and somehow use that as another more depth sound. Right, exactly. I mean, so he was making this, you know, fantastic sound, and you know, like like Keith, like Keith Richards, is like, oh, there must be two guitar players, and he gets amazed when he finds out there's only one guitar player. <laughs> and so today we have this idea that when Robert Johnson disappeared for a little while. He went to the crossroads, made a deal with the devil to become an awesome guitar player. And then that's how uh, he changed so quickly. They said that he vanished from the scene for about a year and a half. And nobody had any idea where he went. So it was just kind of like a mysterious, like, he's gone. And then when he came back, it was like a new person. The way he could play, it was completely changed. And so that, uh, that mystery then, that legend of him, you know, going to that crossroads near Dockery Plantation at midnight. And there he's met by a, a huge African-American man, takes his guitar, and he tunes it. And then he plays a few songs, returns the guitar to Robert Johnson, and when he gets it back, he's a master of the guitar. Yeah, he says, if you take this guitar from my hands, your soul is mine. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. I mean, that, it that gets into the legend. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, there's another artist in the 1930s by the name of Tommy Johnson. And he specifically tells people that uh, he made a deal with the devil to be so good at his music. Like that's part of, so Tommy Johnson is a contemporary of Robert Johnson. Actually, he's a little older because he's born in 1896. And he's also a Delta bluesman. He's playing the same juke joints going around the South playing the same street corners in front of barbershops. And he makes that part of his actual, uh, like the, his self-legend, his promotion. You know, he's the, he's the premier Delta blues vocalist. And he's like, you know why I can sing so sweet? Because I sold my soul to the devil. <laughs> oh, marketing. Yeah, so it's always the good marketing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So the thing is, and now, I mean, we hardly, I mean, people remember Tommy Johnson, and he actually, he's a character in Oh Brother, Where Out Thou?, as well, uh, uh, and he, and he talks about how he sold a uh, soul to the devil to play guitar, and he even say, you know he says that, and you know he sings on in the movie, uh, he accompanies them on "Man of Constant Sorrow" or whatever, which is the um, famous song from "Oh Brother Where Art Thou," which is first of all "Oh Brother Where Art Thou" was already nineteen no. years old. Oh, so <laughs> stop yikes. it! But so that's an interesting thing. So now we have these two guys named Johnson and. 
their their legends get confabulated. Oh, okay. So, because Robert Johnson disappears for a while, and Tommy Johnson, who actually actually courted the idea that he sold his soul to the devil for his musical talent, then that gets attributed to Robert Johnson. When in reality, Robert Johnson. I mean, first of all, did anybody actually sell their soul to the devil? Number one, <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, um, probably not. Uh, but second, Robert Johnson actually studying under a guy named Ike Zimmerman. Could you imagine though, if you actually did sell your soul to the devil, and somebody else is taking credit for it? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. a big one. Like, <laughs> That's a big one to Bogart. <laughs> Tommy Johnson, however, he did live until 1960 at least, so he had a full. Not, I mean. We'd say 64 by our standards today. You're like, well, he's gone too early. But by the standards of the right. early 20th century, he still had a full life compared to Robert Johnson, yeah, who died. At 27. At 27. And so one of Zimmerman's daughters talks about how Robert fit in the family. And he said, she's like, he had to be nice because my daddy was a strong man and a good man. And he wouldn't have taken up no time with someone who wasn't a good person. Uh, he was just like a family member. He came and lived there in our house. And they met at the juke joints, and Robert Johnson asked my daddy how to teach him to play guitar. My daddy taught them. He lived there with my daddy. I'm quoting directly. Yeah. <laughs> this girl do, do the voice, the too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, not going to come out there and write it. Uh, I'm just going to give a quote here. Um, and she said that you know, they were going at the guitar, and uh, she remembers hearing the music, and it sounded so good like they were competing. And that's what she said. He was really teaching him uh, at an advanced pace. And he lived with their family for a year. And they practiced together on the tombstones in Beauregard Cemetery. So there we have that idea that Robert Johnson is playing yeah. in cemeteries <laughs> at midnight. It's not really the standard practicing place. No, but it also is a place where you can be quiet and not disturbed. And since um, they were black, they couldn't hang out at other places and and you couldn't hang out like in the streets or whatever at night because of the sundown law right yeah so they practice in the place they're not going to be bothered and they wouldn't bother anybody else in the house and so they go to the graveyard uh, uh, one of the quotes from the documentary was that uh as Zimmerman said uh you can you can play as bad as you want here no one's going to complain to you <laughs> <laughs> right it's a perfect place to woodshed work on your skills but you I, know? I just absolutely love that the debunking the myth of the devil at the crossroads still involves going to a cemetery and playing right. as they talk about uh at midnight late at night being influenced by the deceased spirits around you yeah that's <laughs> that's pretty crazy it's still nice and cryptic yeah <laughs> well and you know I remember seeing the movie Crossroads, not even, know, I mean, I was a nine when it came out, the movie Crossroads, and I think we saw it like an advanced preview where my mom had free tickets or something. And so we go see that movie. I had no idea who Robert Johnson was. You were talking about Britney Spears and Britney Murphy and that, that Crossroads. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. That classic yeah. <laughs> movie, Britney Spears' star vehicle. I believe the devil was at work in that one, though. <laughs> right. The, the devil wrote the script for that one. Because he wanted to tank Britney Spears' acting career. No, but so there's a movie made in 1985 called Crossroads. It's directed by Walter Hill, um, who has, I mean, Walter Hill's directed some, some great movies. Uh, you know, he directed The Warriors. Um, he's a producer on Alien. Uh, you know, he's done, he's mostly known for action movies like 48 Hours. He directed Red Heat, which. Come on, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jim Belushi. <laughs> really, it's a really good movie. I'm playing a Soviet agent with Jim Belushi. It's, it's a blockbuster. But uh, so Walter Hill directs Crossroads, and it's got the karate kid himself. Yes. Nice. Ralph Macchio, fascinated with the blues. He's fascinated with Robert Johnson. And so this is the first time I probably ever heard the name Robert Johnson was when we saw the movie. Now, did you guys see the movie back in the 80s, or did you, did you see it like later on? I still haven't seen it. I don't know. Yeah, oh, I right. think I saw it later on. All right. Which surprises me because I really uh, liked Ralph Macchio. <laughs> <laughs> right. He's good looking. He's on the cover of Teen right. Beat. Ti no, Tiger, Tiger Beat. Go. Tiger Beat. Right. He's part of that the good looking young. Well, who else is in the movie? The girlfriend in the movie is Jamie Gertz. Chicago. Uh -oh. Star from Chicago. Star of the from Lost Boys. <laughs> uh, like just all around 1980s hottie. And so, like, she's in there, and it's this whole idea that he's searching, f that there's a, there's a lost song of Robert Johnson, and Ralph Macchio wants to go find it. 
And then he finds a guy that was supposedly an associate of Robert Johnson named Willie Brown. Willie Brown, they actually, they, that name is in the song Crossroads. Because there was a Willie Brown who was a contemporary blues musician and was friends with Robert Johnson in life, in real life. And that's why in Crossroads, he's like, you know, stand at the crossroads, tell my friend Willie Brown that he's stuck there because the whole song is actually about not being able to hitch a ride. Hmm. Stuck at the crossroads, can't get a ride. And so he's looking for Willie Brown and then finds him and you find out that actually Willie was the one that sold his soul to the devil so he could play harmonica. And then they go back to the crossroads. They meet the devil and the devil says, you're going to have to you're going to have to give me your soul or whatever. And then Ralph Macchio bravely says, like, you know what? If I'm, I'm going to take you on in a guitar competition and I'm going to win and then you're going to give back, you're going to give back Willie's soul. And the devil's like, sure. But if you lose, I get both your souls. High stakes. Then, yeah. Double or nothing. Right. And then they have a guitar off. And the guy that plays the guitar for the devil, the devil's guitar player, is Steve Vai. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And it's funny you said that about Seven Strings, Scott, because I don't know, I know. It's been a long time. It's been, been 30 years since I've seen this movie or 33 years or whatever since this movie. But um, Steve Vai, uh, he's famous for he was really the first guy to play the seven string guitar. So he so he himself um, like designed his own seven string guitar with Ibanez and things like that. And so uh, his album Passion and Warfare features the seven string that comes out like, you know, five years after uh, Crossroads comes out. And so Steve I is playing a seven-string guitar. I don't know if he plays it in the movie. That would be a sweet little but, Easter egg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, right. That he plays a seven-string like Robert Johnson. But also, Eugene, oh, God, the character. First of all, they named the character that Ralph Macchio plays Eugene because they want to make him as white as possible <laughs> before they blues him up, you know, with Willie. <sighs> he defeats the devil by playing a Paganini arrangement on his guitar because he's already studying classical music. And so... Uh, that's interesting because Paganini also has a relationship with the devil. Yeah, and there's quite a few similarities between him and the Robert Johnson legend because, you know, they say that uh, the the Pratt rehearsing in the cemeteries mm-hmm. was also a European oh, uh, folklore legend that, and so I don't know if Paganini actually did or if it was just part of the the rumor, but Paganini was such a phenomenal violin player that people just, you know, they didn't believe he could he could be a human because he developed these techniques that were well beyond what the average player of the day had. And so, um, but the, the similarities, actually, you know, some of the rumors say that his mother was the one that made the deal with the devil because mm. she was really obsessed with him apparently becoming a good, you know, oh. uh, <laughs> right. Because he was a prodigy, no doubt about it. But, um, People thought that she had made the de- the deal with the devil, that he, that Paganini would get the, the talents, and um, she traded her soul or whatever. But what I think is really fascinating is that the rumors started circulating about him having made the deal with the devil, and people started reported seeing doppelgangers of him that had the cloven hoofs mm-hmm. and horns and things like that walking around town, and also um, people said that they saw like a. Uh, his bow gets struck by lightning while he was playing. So just all these, you can see how it spins out of control. You know, people start talking about him and he, he had a really unique physical appearance too. That kind of contributed to that. Cause he was, he had l- really long fingers and he just was kind of tall and lanky, but uh, kind of interesting that his life also had similarities to Robert Johnson and that, you know, once he got that reputation, it seems like he kind of, took a turn down a road not so healthy <laughs> yeah with drinking and womanizing and one of the creepiest rumors is that people said that he actually he was a murderer and that he murdered uh. one of the women that he was with and used her intestine to make a string that when he played the instrument you could hear her shrieking Awesome. I want that string. <laughs> Wendy, you need to get that string on your oh violin for live shows. <laughs> I just, oh my, but the thing is, we have to tell that story. Like, We have to tell the story about the right? intestine and the string at some show coming up soon. <laughs> and then play something totally happy. And then you just break out a shriek in the middle. And yeah. See, that's her. But his, what he did with the violin was a lot, you know, very, there's a lot of parallels to what Robert Johnson did with the guitar because 
he developed these techniques and he worked on things that other violinists of the time weren't, you know, it wasn't even an option in their world. So they're, they're focusing on intonation and bow control and he's experimenting with all these different techniques and sounds that people had never heard come from the violin. So, you know, he was responsible for much like Johnson was responsible for oh, yeah. a sort of a new genre almost. Um, they, they gave him credit for the violin becoming more of a solo instrument and less of just playing in an ensemble or orchestra. So yeah. that's, that's amazing to me. I, I, I want to cool. jumping off of your, uh, the, the <laughs> screams of the violin. Oh, I want to read this quote that I wrote to you uh, last night. The um, it's, this is a music critic of Paganini. Uh, one of his performances, first off the critic referred to him as uh, Zemel, who is a mythical demonic huntsman instead of the performance. Mm-hmm. The poor violin was a transformed victim in the demon's hand, uh-huh. uttering the complaints of his inflicted torture. So there's no way you guys could have the worst review of all time, no matter how bad any concert goes. Paganini takes it. He takes the cake. Yeah. He gets the award. Well, that makes me feel much better about the review that said a couple of fat middle-aged guys on stage. Wasn't it like gel-haired... Yeah, something. like 90s gel-haired rock or oh, something no. like that. That was, well, that was, I mean, right. That was like a, uh, like 15 years ago or whatever. Oh. And these people had a particular ax to grind. Uh, clearly. Uh, but, okay. but we're over it. So, yeah, <laughs> absolutely over it. It's not like we remember it and talk about it in every practice. I want to jump in really you quickly bastard. before we move on. Because even at this point in time, and we were talking, what, 16 or 1700s when uh, yeah, he was. It was late seventeen. It was like seventeen eighty two. He was born. Okay, so already the violin for centuries was associated with the devil at this point. Because mm. so, I was thinking that maybe that was the first time that people were making that connection that the devil plays violin. Uh, but it actually starts uh, back towards the fourteen hundreds. Whoa! Um, and of course, why does any mythical uh, superstition like this start? Uh, usually a power grab or just straight up racism. And that's more so what it was. Uh, And that's when uh, stringed instruments began to show up in Europe, but they came from Arabia in the 15th century. And that was a very unchristian place. And it was more, maybe more sensual and not as refined. Yeah. So dark. So they, I mean, they spent centuries fighting, you know, fighting the Arabs in the crusade. Sure. So this idea that the, uh, you know the crusade. The the Arabians were aligned with the devil. That comes right out of the Crusades because obviously the um, the Muslims had taken over the Holy Land, and they were you know engaged in slaughter for centuries. Yeah. So the the first uh, instruments were the the rubab and rabak, who were kind of the the I don't know the forefathers to eventually in the mid 1500s uh, the violin coming around. And so that association with stringed instruments like that, which is really fun to see that now it goes all the way into now guitars, people plucking away on those stringed instruments yeah. still. Yeah. And it's interesting that the like the violin got that reputation. It was like one of the first devil's instruments. Uh-huh. Also, what we learned was that part of it was because it was the first instrument that played, you know, fun, dancey kind of music that was loud enough. Right. It was loud enough and it was portable. So people could bring it to mm-hmm. local watering holes and play music. And then, of course, that, oh, oh, they're in that bad place and they're causing yeah. trouble. And people are shaking their booties but, now. Yeah. But I never really thought about the fact, you know, there was there was an amplification. So mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Bring like a, a like a bugle or something and start <laughs> like, you know, that's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. Well, I mean, that's. That we're talking about the juke joints. We're talking about the you know street corners, and it's this idea that the devil's music is the party music, the fun music. <laughs> no, yeah. no, but and it's true. And they say it's the devil's music because it's not holy, it's not religious. It's and the people who are playing it are guys like Robert Johnson who have a different girl in every town. Mm-hmm. I mean, Robert Johnson or Mick. Ja- it could be Mick sure. Jagger as well. We're talking about. Yeah. Um, they got a different girl in every town. They're drinkers. Robert Johnson had a weakness for whiskey. Mm-hmm. We hear about. And, you know, when he eventually dies, first of all, there's, you know, they're like, well, we're not exactly sure how Robert Johnson, you know, died. But the idea is that, well, he died of syphilis, and which is, you know, a sexually transmitted disease. And so even have that idea that he gets a, you know, he gets a crazy, you know, he gets a a disease from his devilish lifestyle. So these guys have this, you know, 
very non-religious kind of lifestyle. So this idea that they're already in league with the mm-hmm. devil because they're you know doing evil stuff um, isn't you know isn't that far out of isn't that far out of whack? And so we get to this idea of like, well, why would the devil live at the crossroads? And you know why would be this this place where Robert Johnson would meet him? We got to go back to the 19th century, and uh, it's still in the slave days. And then you have the the slave owners and the plantation owners. They were trying to Christianize their slaves, mm-hmm. so they kidnapped people. I mean, it wasn't just the whites and the Europeans. We were doing this. It was there was Arab slave traders. There was African slave traders. It was a whole messed up culture of owning other human beings at the time. But once they were brought to the new world, the you know the owners in their in their Christian mission wanted to convert their slaves to Christianity. They wouldn't let them practice their traditional religion. And so one of these former slaves, his name is Samuel Ajayi Crowther, and he's captured when he's 12 years old. He's taken over to Sierra Leone. And then when he gets there, he becomes uh, like a ward of the church. And he eventually converts to Christianity. He's taught English. He's baptized. And then he becomes a missionary. And he decides it's his idea to help Christianize, you know, all of the Africans. Uh, in Nigeria and different places around Africa. And so he actually translates the Bible, uh, the Christian Bible, into this language of Yoruba, the Yoruba people. And as he does that, um, he's looking for words for the devil and, you know, different Christian uh, characters like they would be in, in the African religion. So it makes sense. And so then he, you know, in the translation... He makes the devil this character, um, Legba, who's this trickster spirit in these West African religions. And so he does that, uh, and it goes by a whole bunch of different names, Eshu, Iku. Um, there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of different names for this spirit throughout Africa, but it, they're all pretty much the same. He's the trickster, and he can also grant special powers, and he lives at the crossroads. That's where you can go to try and summon Papa Legba. And so then we have this, you know, in, in the oral tradition of the Africans, you have this character, uh, this, this spirit, who then can grant powers, and people will, you know, perform rituals to him and everything. He, and he exists in voodoo, uh, you know, in Haitian voodoo, in New Orleans voodoo. Um, and so, you know, he's this character, you know, you might see him, he wears a, like a big hat. He often has a cigar in his mouth or a pipe. And, you know, people will do rituals to him to get special specific powers. So then you confabulate another thing here with uh, this idea that, well, if you're going to make a deal with the devil, who in the West African language, in, the, in this translation, becomes the trickster spirit, you find him at the crossroads. And so that's where you can make that deal. And so it's interesting that you take some a little bit of the European legend of Faust, who makes it, he sells the devil his soul in order for great power and wisdom, and goes with the African idea of performing a ritual to get powers and assistance from this Papa Legba, this Iku, this trickster spirit. And then you take a guy like Robert Johnson, who's playing the devil's music, and his songs like Hellhound on My Trail and The Crossroads Blues, uh, things like that. And then it eventually becomes uh, the legend that he sold his soul to the devil to be an awesome guitar player. And it's just a, it's a really interesting history of how cultures kind of just leapfrog onto each other in order to get the ideas that eventually manifest themselves into a 1980s movie, <laughs> yeah. which leads to my youthful obsession with King <laughs> <laughs> Well, as a musician, I have to say, you know, I really feel bad for these guys because to get that good at an instrument is so much work, so much dedication, so much discipline. And people are like, oh yeah, I sold it, sold it. Like that, if, if it were that easy, <laughs> you know, right. if only it were it. that easy. <laughs> so these these guys yeah. just, you know, they they should they deserve so much credit for all that they put into to mastering the instrument. Not only mastering it, like pushing it beyond the boundaries of like what is known. <laughs> just like, oh yeah, he, yeah. he went and you know made a made a deal with the devil, like, and then he just Most walked of, away. That's with, the only answer. Yeah, he yeah. just walked away with his power. It's like, you know, the guy dedicated his life to 
to the instrument. Right. He did. And he was, and he was, it's not like they were living richly. Mm-hmm. Like you expect a, a deal with the devil. You're going to get rich. Yeah. Right. You're going to have a lot of money. I mean, he had to take homely women. Like he had to beg them to take him back to the plantation house or whatever. To have a place so to he could sleep. there. And also I think that it was almost like the self-fulfilling prophecy or, or I guess, I don't know if that's the correct way to say it, but a lot of these guys, once they were accused of having mm-hmm. made that deal, uh-huh. it's like their life kind of spun out of control even worse it seems like they well, became with, with robert johnson you know so he had the tragedy where his wife and um you know would-be child pass away in childbirth uh and then you know he, he bounces back from that and of course the family as you talked about blamed him because he's playing the devil's music and then later he goes and he finds another girl and he's he wants to marry her and she's forbidden to marry him because he's a blues man playing the devil's music and i think at that point he was fed up he's like you know what? Yeah, I am. Yeah, he just I'm the it. devil. <laughs> Screw it. I'm, and he just starts right. leaning into it, and just yep. he goes down that path uh, out of despair and depression. I'm sure. Yeah, and just like you think I'm this, right? Sure, I'll be that. Yeah, I'm gonna own it. Yeah, exactly. Whether it was conscious or not, and Paganini's life also was that way too. Like it seemed like as the rumors and the legends and the fame increased, he slid down that slippery slope. Oh yeah, with the womanizing and the drinking and. He got uh, STDs and all kinds of fun stuff like that. So interesting similarities there. Well, and speaking of, I mean, there is an idea that Robert Johnson probably did have congenital syphilis, and that might have been a contributing factor in his death. Uh, August 16th, 1938, near Greenwood, Mississippi, they say he died. And uh, it wasn't until 30 years later when somebody who was researching his life found the death certificate. In fact, there was a guy who was putting together a blues show for Carnegie Hall. In 1941, uh, they didn't even know like that Robert Johnson was dead. And this guy came to get him for a show in Carnegie Hall and found out that he was dead. And so like his, it wasn't reported publicly. They say that uh, they found a dead black man found by the side of the road near a farm near Greenwood, Mississippi. And, you know, there's different accounts of, you know, why he specifically died. Um, some people think that uh, he was murdered by a jealous husband of a woman he had flirted with. Is that that's what they talk about that in, in the documentary, right? Yeah, the uh, owner. Not, not not only not only is he messing around with someone's wife, but it's uh, the venue owner <laughs> of oh, a yeah. juke joint, the what the three four club. Uh, eventually, uh, he bought he buys a uh, Johnson buys a bottle of whiskey, but it was clearly tampered with. But he's like, well, I'm not letting whiskey go to waste. And he enjoyed it anyway and then was absolutely sick for the next three days and uh, and pass, passes away. Nobody ever does time for the crime because, you know, it's just another poor black man dying in Mississippi and it's not a priority to uh, find justice for that kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah. And, well, and, and also there's... Um, this, this idea that like he was on the plantation and he died. And here's somebody talking about uh, a note on the back of his death certificate that they don't find until the 1960s. Mm. And the state director of vital statistics writes this. I talked with the white man on whose place the Negro died. And I also talked with the Negro woman on the place. The plantation owner said that the Negro man, seemingly 26 years old, came from Tunica two or three weeks before he died to play banjo at a Negro dance given there on the plantation. He stayed in the house with some of the Negroes saying he wanted to pick cotton. The white man did not have a doctor for this Negro as he had not worked for him. And he was buried in a homemade coffin furnished by the county. The plantation owner said it was his opinion that the man died of syphilis. So that's where the syphilis idea comes from instead of the poison. But interestingly enough, this is, so this is from a 2012 NPR podcast on Crossroads, on Robert Johnson. Um, they think that there is a different Robert Johnson who was also touring around playing banjo in the 1930s and uh, died near this plantation. And so hmm. that there's another guy who's out there with the exact same name, but he played banjo instead of playing guitar. And so that's who they think the guy that died of syphilis might be. Wow. Interesting. And could that also explain the multiple grave sites for Robert Johnson? Yeah. Right. Because there's, there's three different places where they have, you know, Robert Johnson tombstones. One is near the Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church near Morgan City, Mississippi. And that's, they actually have a one-ton cenotaph in the shape of an obelisk there, listing his song titles and everything. And Columbia wow. Records bought that. 
in huh. uh, 1990. But then also, near the Payne Chapel in Quito, Mississippi, an Atlanta rock group called the Tombstones decided to give a burial site for Robert Johnson. And one of his ex-girlfriends said that this is where he really was buried. And they put a tombstone up there. So that was like a publicity stunt by the Tombstones. Yeah. <laughs> And, and and that's why we all know their name today. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so and so then uh, another guy in 2000 thought that this actual gravesite is under a pecan tree in the cemetery of the Little Zion Church. And then Sony Music ended up putting a tombstone there in you know in the early 2000s. So there's three different places you can go visit Robert Johnson's reported remains, and one of them might be Robert Johnson. Another might be this other Robert Johnson. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, why people get fascinated with these characters is because yeah. we, we can make up stuff about them. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Well, speaking of the, the tombstone and the, the death part of the story, getting back to Paganini, just one more thing was that yeah. um, when he died, he was really sick and they came in to give him his final last rites and uh, he refused. He refused the last rites because he didn't think he was going to die. And so, you know... <laughs> Oh. in denial but then he did die and so he died without having had last rites so they refused to bury him in a christian cemetery so that just fueled more and more oh rumors gosh. after he yeah. was gone Absolutely. that yep Brian. yep that confirms you know yeah. he's the he's the devil <laughs> so yeah what i think is interesting about these things too is that you know robert johnson influences these 1960s artists that we were talking about in the beginning, guys like Jimmy Page and the Rolling Stones. And Jimmy Page obviously went full in on the occult <laughs> symbolism. Right. And we've talked about that before, how they all had their own symbols on Led Zeppelin four. Like they, you know, they put the symbols in the album, like sigils, magical sigils that Jimmy Page won't even, I mean, and he still won't tell, like he still sticks to the magic. Like he won't tell you what it means and stuff. Um, also Jimmy Page bought Boleskine house, the home of mm-hmm. Alistair Crowley. And supposedly performed rituals there. Boleskine House, which is just, uh, didn't it just burn again, like two, l- last month? Oh, I didn't hear about that. Mm. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Boleskine House is on the shores of Loch Ness. So it makes it even more mystical or whatever, because <laughs> Alistair Crowley, uh, that was one of the things that um, some researchers have said that the Loch Ness monster is not actually a cryptozoological, not actually oh, a real manifestation, perhaps? Yeah, a manifestation cool. of the different occult rituals that were performed there by people like Crowley or Jimmy Page. And even Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin talks about like how there probably wouldn't be a Led Zeppelin without Robert Johnson. And so, I mean, they really did, uh, like a lot of the music that we consider contemporary rock and roll and heavy metal and everything has got a direct, uh, I mean, a direct relationship to the music that Robert Johnson gave us. So. August 16th, the 81st anniversary of Robert's death, but his musical legacy still lives with us, as well as these crazy legends that he sold his soul to the devil. And it's such an interesting thing, the way that these culture, like the the way that the cultures kind of jump on each other, Um, African culture, European culture, the South in specifically, um, voodoo, and they all get together. Voodoo. Voodoo, right? They all get together in this gumbo. Uh, to form this, you know, this perfect Gumbo. storm of legends um, that makes it so fascinating to talk about uh, a very influential player so long after his death. So once again, we want to thank Scott Marcus from whatsyourghoststory.com for joining us on this conversation. Actually, Scott suggested the topic because you, uh, you saw the anniversary of the death. And so thank you for suggesting that, Scott. Thanks, yeah. Scott. Yeah, it worked out really well. I always love, I don't know, I've never been down there. Uh, the Mississippi Delta is very high on my bucket list of places to visit. Just as a music lover, but also for the, the the creepy spiritual side too. Yeah, for sure. Well, you can go to the actual crossroads. Uh, they have it near Clarksdale. Not, it's probably not the. I mean, he didn't sell a soul to the devil like that. <laughs> that didn't happen. But you can go to the uh, you can go to the crossroads. They set up it's like two guitars. And it's an intersection near Clarksdale, Mississippi, near where Robert Johnson grew up and where he's from. So, uh, if on your rock and roll bucket list. Uh, you can make sure and check it out, even though it probably wasn't Robert Johnson that sold his soul to the devil. He just sold his soul to practicing a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone can do it. That's right. One of Robert Johnson's most famous songs is called Hellhound on My Trail. And looking for inspiration from this week's song, we realized that, you know, bands like Led Zeppelin would take a blues line or a lick or a riff and then 
move on to make their own entire song about it. So since Robert Johnson's treasure trove of lyrics and music has been uh, excessively exploited by the British rock bands of the 1960s and 70s, went into something a little different. Um, I was reading a book called The Thicket by Joe Lansdale. He wrote the Happen Leonard series and Bubba Hotep uh, that Bruce Campbell played Elvis in. And I just finished that book last week. And it's a really cool book, but there's some lines in it that really stuck with me. And one of them was that God is an idea and the devil is us. And that sounded like the perfect song to use because that era of the book is from the early 1900s. And it's an uber-religious character who's constantly feeling guilty about the bad things he has to do. And it seems like that's the era of the South that Robert Johnson grew up in and felt like the perfect kind of thing that maybe the hellhound that was always on Robert Johnson's trail really was just his best friend. And so that's the inspiration behind this week's song, Man's Best Friend. for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Well, real quick, before we go leave to make deals with (laughs) unsavory characters, Mike, we got to make sure we thank our Patreon supporters. Absolutely. I'll make a deal with the devil right now to get you guys to join the See You on the Other Side (laughs) Patreon community. (laughs) No, really, the the Patreon's... um, (laughs) 
uh, they allow us to keep doing what we're doing. Um, the more Patreons we have, the more cool stuff we can do, the more songs and videos and podcasts we can create and, and the better content we can produce for you guys. And our Patreons right now, we want to thank you guys so much for being part of our community and making yes. See You on the Other Side podcast possible. Thank you. And yes, the more Patreon members we have too, the more interesting discussions we can have because mm-hmm. everybody brings a little something to the table. Absolutely. And so uh, speaking of, you know, um, one of our Patreons, Dr. Ned, who we mentioned in every single episode because Ned is at the level of Patreon membership where he's an executive producer on the show and gets a mention in every episode. But the thing is, is that uh, we played a show with Dr. Ned singing, actually, a few years back, and he sang a Robert Johnson song as covered by the Rolling Stones, Love in Vain. And yeah. so our Patreons can help inspire podcasts as well as sometimes we'll play a song with them on stage. That's right. And Ned, thanks for coming to our show last weekend. Also, it was great Good to see you. So everybody out there, if you're interested in joining the coolest paranormal podcast community on the web, check it out at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And if you're a Patreon member, we'll buy you a drink and we'll see you in Michigan this weekend. Cheers. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm totally distracted. Mike's hand was uh, very low in the foreground, out of focus. I thought there was some being walking around behind. Oh, because you have the blurred background <laughs> yeah, exactly. set on Skype. I'm like, there's a little head that's slowly entering the frame. Nice. <laughs> yes. Like, wait a I couldn't. I was transfixed. Uh, I saw uh, you staring no, at well, the screen. Okay.